Now please stand for the reading of God's word. We will be reading today from Galatians chapter 5, and our text is verses 7 through 12, but we will read verses 1 through 12 to remind ourselves about the previous passage. Galatians 5, 1 through 12, this is the word of the living God. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. This is the word of God. All of God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated, and let us uh, go to the Lord now in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for every opportunity that you give us to uh, be in your word, to receive it. Uh, We are thankful that you have given it to us for our instruction that we might be strengthened in the Christian life, that we would grow in faith, that we would grow in faith working through love. And we desire that this would be the effect of our time in Galatians. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate our minds and apply this word to our hearts. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, for 2,000 years now, the message of the Christian faith has centered around a historical event that remains shocking and offensive to the world. The bloody, gruesome crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ on a hill outside Jerusalem. That is central to the message of the Christian faith, along with our Lord's resurrection. Now, even though the symbolism of crosses has been somewhat naturalized in our minds because of how frequently we see the symbol, nevertheless, if you think about this event, if you think about its meaning, if you think about its application, you can understand why people in the world remain offended by this message to the present day. It is a stumbling block to so many. But, of course, it is the very means by which we are saved. The idea that we are so sinful and that justice demands satisfaction and that God's wrath is against all who do sin 
and that no reconciliation can take place apart from the cross of Christ is an offense to the world, a world that is in love with the conceit of its own goodness. It can't accept this message apart from the Father in heaven revealing it through the Holy Spirit. The cross of Christ dramatically displays just how desperate our condition is apart from a Savior. It shows the sinfulness of our sins. It shows us our inability to fix our fallen condition for ourselves. And for this reason, it is such an offense, indeed, even a barrier to, to so many. If we were to try to sanitize the Christian faith and to make it more palatable to the people of this world... Well, one of the first things that would have to go would be the cross itself. And then what would, be, what would we be left with in terms of the message of the Christian faith? And so, yes, the cross of Christ is considered foolishness to many. It's a stumbling block to many. But to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. It is the greatest display of God's love for this fallen world who demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, as we come to this particular passage in Galatians, I do want to focus upon that concept of how the cross is offensive, the offense of the cross. But we also need to look at Paul's other questions and exhortations to the Galatians in these uh, verses 7 through 12. And this is one of those sections of Galatians where Paul is very directly speaking to the Galatian Christians. Sometimes he was expounding some significant matter of of instruction. Sometimes he's exhorting them towards obedience to the word of God, especially in the later chapters. But there's times where Paul speaks directly to the people of God, knowing their condition, knowing the situation that they're in. And he he gives them a bunch of different questions to consider. He throws these questions out to them so that they will think about what's taking place within their churches. And Paul is, is zealous in this letter. We've seen the intensity, the zeal that he has for the truth. And we know that Paul's zeal is 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 one motivated by love, by loving concern for God's people. He doesn't want to see them harmed by this false teaching that's taking place in Galatia. And indeed, souls were being harmed. We read in our passage that if you uh, accept circumcision, if you accepted this ritual, if you put your trust in this thing that you had done, you would cut yourselves off from Christ. That's significant. This is a very dangerous situation that God's people are facing. And Paul is a good shepherd of the flock here. And good shepherds, they are gentle, loving, and sometimes quite firm with the flock where necessary to exhort them. But good shepherds are also unsparing towards the wolves that would hurt the flock. They are very, very zealous to protect the flock from those that would do the flock harm. And so we are going to focus then upon this phrase, the offense of the cross, but we also want to consider uh, Paul's questions to the Galatians, his exhortations that he gives them, and I think we'll find much value uh, in those particular statements that Paul gives us. So let's begin by looking at the first question that Paul asks in verse 7. 
Paul writes, he says, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Paul here, he uses this athletic imagery of running a race, running well in the Christian life. And of course, Paul often used uh, phrases like this. He would talk about at the end of his life, he says, I've fought the good fight, I've run the race, I've kept the faith. So he presented the the Christian life as a, a life that is a run, it is a marathon in a particular direction. He says in 1 Corinthians, he tells God's people to run in such a way as to obtain the prize. Whenever we're given pictures like this in Scripture, it's valuable for us to think about them, to uh, integrate them into our perspectives on the Christian life. And so this idea of the run, the race, is important for us to think about. And what Paul says here is that when the Galatians had begun the Christian life, They were running well. They had received the truth. They had believed. They had received the Spirit of God. They understood the implications of the gospel, and they were following Christ. But somewhere along the way, with the uh, coming in of these false teachers, something had gone very wrong. And Paul says that you've been hindered from obeying the truth. You have been hindered in your run in this particular direction, this run of faith. This particular word that Paul uses, hinder, it was sometimes used in Greek literature in an athletic context to refer to being cut off. And that is the picture, that the Galatians, they're running along, they're doing well, and then somebody comes along and jumps in front of them, and they're stumbling. They they fall to the ground, they're off the track. And kids, have you ever seen that? If you're, you're running together with a bunch of people in a particular direction and, and somebody runs in, in front of you, what happens? You, you fall down. You're, you're not running anymore. You're, you're off the track. You're off the way that you are to be going. And Paul says, this is what has happened to you, Galatians. You have been knocked off course. This is not the way that you should run. And so Paul here is... He's warning them about their situation. He tells them that this this persuasion that they have adopted, this false teaching, is not from the God who called them into saving faith. It was not God's calling upon them to receive this false teaching. And so children, this is the first point in your notes. The Galatians were knocked off the racetrack of faith by accepting false teaching. They were knocked off the racetrack of faith by accepting false teaching. Now what this reminds us about, brothers and sisters, is that it is possible for any one of us to get knocked off the track. This can happen in different ways. Now that that knocking off the track, of course, can thankfully be a a temporary to detour from the race of faith. And of course, we know that those who have been granted the gift of saving faith will, by God's power, be preserved, brought back, and kept on that path. But it is possible for true believers to get knocked off the track, to begin wandering in the wrong direction. And at any time that happens, any time you see either yourself or your brother or sister in Christ wandering off the track... We should see it as our duty to warn, to remind, to call back 
to the right path. And in fact, James in chapter 5, he says that if any one of you, not just the elders, if any one of you sees a brother or sister wandering from the truth, and you go and you bring them back, you will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That is a, a calling upon each one of us. And so if you ask the question that Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes, you are. You are called to watch out for your fellow brother and sister, just as Paul did for the Galatians. Yes, he was a church shepherd, he was an apostle, he had a particular uh, calling here in writing this letter, but we are all called to watch out for one another, and we need to watch out for anything that will knock us off the track. Well, how does this happen? What sort of things knock us off the racetrack of faith uh, and keep us from running well? Well, there's a variety of ways it happens. Certainly, it could be that we have false teachers that might come into this congregation or any other congregation and lead people astray, just as was happening in Galatia. And yet, a lot of the encounters we have with false teaching is much more subtle than that. I've said before that it's usually not like the cult leader shows up and has a sign-up card for you and you very officially joined the false cult. Sometimes that does happen. But in most cases, the encounters we have with false teaching is quite slow, it's quite subtle. It happens as we increasingly accept the opinions, the the reasonings, the perspectives of the world around us. We begin to imbibe the spirit of the age around us and we slowly, we imperceptibly perhaps, chip away at the foundations of our faith by the acceptance of such false teaching. This can also happen by means of accepting a sinful habit in your life. If you justify these sinful patterns in your life, often what will happen as you continue in this sinful pattern of of behavior is that you become dulled to the truth of the gospel. Your heart is hardened, you're not awake to the things of God, and you ultimately begin to live as a practical atheist, whether or not you adopt the label. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be watchful about these things. We need to be watchful to know the right track, and watchful for any time we begin to veer, any time we begin to detour. And so if a brother or sister comes to you and they say, brother, I think you're wandering. I don't think that what you're choosing to do here is consistent with the calling of the race of faith. We need to listen up. We need to humbly consider that exhortation of our brother who is concerned for us. We go on now to another uh, image that Paul gives us. He's talked about this athletic imagery of running the race, but now he, he wants to warn them about the danger of this false teaching. And so in verse 9, he gives us this picture. It's a very simple statement. It's like a proverb. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's very straightforward, very simple in terms of how these things work. We have similar proverbs in English. We, we say things like, there's a fly in the ointment. 
Uh, we have, you know, you have some nice, precious, good ointment that has a very useful a value to it, but then a fly can, can ruin it. Or, or imagine a, a, an insect being in your soup or something like that. You're thinking, I'm just going to throw the whole soup out. Uh, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Or we have the phrase, one bad apple spoils the whole barrel and affects everything else. These are similar kinds of images. Of course, leaven is even stronger than that because you put leaven as you are are baking and it's going to work its way through the whole lump. And we might interpret the lump to refer to the church in the sense that this false teaching would work its way through the whole of the Galatian churches and suddenly all the God's people would be deluded by this false teaching of trusting in themselves and in their own righteousness... On the other hand, it might be just a reference to how false doctrine affects all the other beliefs in our lives. And so Paul is saying, he's warning them that to add just a little leaven, just, just the leaven of circumcision, just the leaven of one or two or three ritual observances and, and, and to see those things as the means by which you gain your righteousness before God is to leaven the entire lump. It is to overthrow the truth of the gospel. And Paul says elsewhere in Galatians, he says, then Christ died in vain, if all of this is true, if righteousness were through the law, then the keeping of the law by ourselves, then Christ died in vain. The cross is useless, it's purposeless, if that is what we are to receive. And so this was a serious matter, and there are times where because the matter is so serious that we have to warn just as Paul warned. Wouldn't this have the effect of dividing people and causing more controversy in Galatia for Paul to say things like this? It would. It would cause controversy. It would cause division. But there was already controversy, there was already division, and when it comes to fighting for the truth of the gospel, then we must spare no, no pains in order to fight for that truth. And the Bible actually teaches that those who are divisive are those who separate themselves from the truth of the gospel, not those who fight for it. You can find that in Romans chapter 16. Now, as we, as we keep going through our passage, we, we also see something about Paul as a good shepherd in verse 10. Paul was able to bring together a great deal of concern for the Galatians, and he remained hopeful for them. And this is very instructive for us when we are concerned about others, we're concerned for the church. Uh, this is a difficult pathway to walk because when we become concerned about something, we are very tempted not to be hopeful at the same time. Now look at Paul's words in, uh, in verse 10. He says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment whoever he is. Let me paraphrase that for you. He's saying, I have confidence in the Lord that you are not going to continue in this pathway of false teaching. You're not going to choose this other persuasion. The ones that are troubling you, the false teachers, they are going to be judged by God. That's basically what he's saying in verse 10. Now, 
how can Paul be so hopeful and so confident that that's what's going to happen? It didn't look good in Galatia, people accepting these false teachings. Paul had said even that they were bewitched. Uh, He says that they were fools in chapter 3. So how can he be so confident that the Galatians are going to make it through and hold to the true and right opinion? I really found uh, a statement from Matthew Henry to be particularly uh, uh, noteworthy and kind of shocking the way he put this. I thought this was good. He says, uh, concerning verse 10, Herein Paul teaches us that we ought to hope the best of those concerning whom we have cause to fear the worst. I thought that was interesting. To hope the very best concerning those that we actually might think that we have cause to fear the very worst. How, how difficult that can be for us uh, to think in that, that mindset. So why is Paul confident? Well, there is a very important phrase in verse 10 that explains why Paul is confident concerning the Galatians being won back to the truth. Look at the, look at the verse again. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. So Paul's not confident in the Galatians themselves. He's not impressed by the Galatians' ability to discern false doctrine. He's he's not impressed by the Galatians' track record, and that's where he's resting his confidence that they're going to hold fast to the truth. No, he's saying, I am confident in the Lord that you will not have this other opinion. So, So Paul's confidence is in the work of God in his church to to preserve his people, to bring them back to the truth, to not allow them to continue in this false pattern of teaching. And this is very important for us as we, are, as we have concerns for one another, as we have concerns for the church as a whole, we think, is it all just going to be burned up, go up in flames, fail, burn out, nothing's going to come of it? We, we can be tempted perhaps to think that as we look at various situations. And yet we know As the hymn we sing says, the church shall never perish, her dear Lord, to defend. We ought not to fear the failure of the church. And so when we see the church tossed to and fro by false teaching, when we see it corrupted uh, by leaven, uh, as we can certainly find examples of, do remember that Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, will lead his people to green pastures. He will protect them from the wolves. He will lead them through the valley of the shadow of death. And children, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, the Lord Jesus Christ is a good shepherd. And he will not let his sheep get eaten by wolves. Paul was confident that that God was going to restore them. Uh, Maybe not every single person in the Galatian church would come back to the right opinion. I don't know, but he's certainly speaking corporately to the church, that God was going to restore them, he's going to bring them back to a right understanding of the gospel, and that his letter would be a means that God would use to bring about that restoration. Now, and and I've said before that good shepherds, they are caring for the flock, but they are unsparing towards the wolves. And we definitely see in verse 10 that Paul is unsparing to the wolves. He says in verse 10 at the end, 
He who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. For some reason, Paul uses it in the singular sense. Maybe there was particularly one key leader that was leading this false teaching, or maybe he's using it just generically, that anybody that's in this category of of teaching these things and misleading you and disturbing you, they will bear the judgment that is due them for perverting the gospel of Christ. To take the life-giving truth of the gospel, salvation found in no other name but Jesus Christ, to take that message and to pervert it, to twist it, and then to deliver that perverted version, that twisted version to people and to mislead them and perhaps to destroy their souls is a very, very serious matter, Paul teaches us. So serious is it that in verse 12 we see perhaps one of Paul's most shocking uh, statements in all of the letter. He says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. As, we, as we've seen many times in Galatians, Paul is not a people pleaser. He's not concerned about that as he seeks to protect the flock. And this phrase is, is shocking uh, to many. Some people have read it to say that they would just cut themselves off from the church and be removed, and that may be certainly part of the message. But contextually, and per- probably most accurately in terms of interpretation, Paul is actually saying that those who had put their trust in circumcision, that they would just mutilate themselves and go the whole way. It's a, it's a shocking thing for us to consider as Paul presses upon them here. And why does Paul say something like this? Why, why something so, so shocking? Well, elsewhere we have seen that Paul likened their trust in circumcision to embracing a pagan religion. It's true. Circumcision, of course, was an ordinance of God in the Old Testament. It, it, it was a valuable sign that God gave his people, but it had never, ever been intended to be a means in which you put your trust to gain righteousness before God. On the contrary, in Romans chapter 4, Paul says that circumcision is a sign and seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. Much like baptism, it is a picture of the fact that we gain our righteousness by trusting in a Savior, not in ourselves. And so for them to take circumcision or to take any other ritual and to say, put your trust in this, was to fundamentally take an ordinance of God and to turn it into a pagan ritual. And in fact, there was a, a cult, a, a false uh, pagan cult uh, in the region of Galatia that did things like this that Paul is describing. The cult of Sibylle, uh, this false goddess Sibylle, there was rituals by which people would mutilate themselves in worship of this false god. It's possible that that's the background that Paul has in mind and what he might be saying, if that's the background, is something like this. If you're going to put your trust in some ritual of something that you've done, why not go the whole way? Why not go further than even this one ritual? There's a bit of perhaps mockery, there's a bit of sarcasm uh, underlying this, but it is 
a, a mockery or a sarcasm that is designed to awaken, to expose the danger and the falsehood that is affecting the church. So we go on now to verses 11 and 12, and we will consider now the offense of the cross. And he asks another question of the Galatians here. He keeps asking these rapid-fire questions to awaken them, to get them to consider. And he says, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Now how is it that to preach circumcision removes the offense of the cross? That is fascinating to me that there's these two paths that Paul presents. You can, you can preach circumcision, this ritualistic law-keeping, putting your trust in what you do, putting your trust in your own righteousness, or you can preach the cross. And he says that if I had just preached circumcision, like all the, the Jews and these uh, false teachers, uh, the entire offense of the cross would not even be in the picture because we wouldn't be talking about the cross. We wouldn't be applying the truth of the cross anymore. And because the cross would no longer matter uh, if righteousness were by the keeping of the law. But, but, of course, Paul says, that is not what I've done. I'm not preaching circumcision. I am committed to the message of the cross. That's actually how he began his letter. He says that he is writing concerning how Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. So Paul is committed to the offense of the cross and the salvation that is found in the cross. So why is it that the the cross of Christ has been such a stumbling block for thousands of years? It has invited persecution for thousands of years. To preach the cross of Christ today is to invite to yourself ridicule, rejection, mockery, and perhaps persecution as well. And you can find the, the standard objections to the cross of Christ in a variety of places. Uh, every world religion that responds to Christianity has various objections to the cross. And I looked at a few of the statements of some of the most uh, well-known atheists of our day because I was curious what they thought of the cross. I know they didn't accept it, but what do they think of the cross? How do they respond to this message? So I looked at Richard Dawkins' statements. I was curious what what he had to say about the cross to understand the offense of the cross to the natural man. And he described the cross in this way. He said the cross or the atonement of Christ is vicious and repellent. He went on to ask, he said, if God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them? without having himself tortured and executed in payment. There's the wisdom of the natural man asking the question, if God would just wanted to forgive us, why couldn't he just forgive us? Why this cross thing? Why this ugly picture and this ugly event? Christopher Hitchens, he made a similar judgment. He, in this case, he came at it from a moral standpoint. He, he said... Ask yourself the question, how moral is the following? 
I am told of a human sacrifice that took place 2,000 years ago without me wishing it and in circumstances so ghastly that had I been present and in possession of any influence, I would have been duty-bound to try and stop it. In consequence of this murder, my own manifold sins are forgiven me and I may hope to enjoy eternal life. So you have these two men, these two natural men, coming at the message of the cross, coming at this message and trying to respond to it. And it's noteworthy that they have these moral objections to the cross. These are, of course, men that have no foundation for morality at all. They have no objective basis for anything they're saying whatsoever. So to even ask the question is literally uh, nonsensical. Uh, It is nonsense for Christopher Hitchens to ask us whether it is moral because he has no foundation for morality whatsoever, outside of his subjective perception of these things. But you see in these statements the kind of objections that people will bring to the cross. They don't like the message of the cross. It is offensive. It is ugly. It is strange. It is all of these other things that people might bring bring to, to describe it. And you'll even find there are Uh, people within the larger Christian world that do indeed try to soften the message of the cross or to remove it entirely because it is such a stumbling block, it seems. And they say, well, if we want to make the Christian faith grow, to be palatable, then we need to tone this down or completely remove it in some cases. But as I've said, brothers and sisters, we do not have the Christian faith without the cross of Christ. Richard Niebuhr, a a theologian back in 1937, he he gave a summary of the different theologies that were percolating uh, back in the 1930s and 40s. And and he, he was parodying how foolish it is to try to retain the Christian faith while removing its most difficult or offensive elements. And he, he summarized the attempt to redefine the Christian faith in this way. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Does that make any sense? You can't talk about God bringing us into a kingdom through Christ unless you have wrath, sin, judgment, and a cross. You have to have all of those things to make any sense of what the message of the Bible is. The cross of Christ doesn't make any sense unless you believe in the reality of sin. The warnings the Bible makes about God's wrath and judgment make no sense unless you accept the fact that sin is really the evil that the Bible says it is. The cross of Christ is central to the Christian faith along with the resurrection. That's why Paul, when he summarized the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he reminded the God's people, he says, what are the things of first importance that I delivered to you? He says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And here is the thing that is so offensive about this, the phrase, Christ died for our sins. That's the offense. It is offensive to say that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for sinners. He took our place 
and that the just wrath of God fell on him. And to believe in this cross, to receive this message, you have to believe certain things that the word of God reveals. You must believe that God is holy. You must believe that God is a just God. You must believe that God is a God of wrath. And you must believe that God is a very loving God. You have to believe all of that at the same time to understand the cross. You must believe in God's law as the standard of righteousness and morality. That is your standard. You must believe it if you are to receive the cross. You must believe that sin is a real thing, that sin has eternal consequences. You must believe that all people are sinners in need of redemption from sin. These are the foundational truths that if you remove these, if you do not believe these, then the cross of Jesus Christ will not make sense to you and you will not receive it. So Paul, he said in 1 Corinthians 1 concerning the cross, he says, the Jews, they request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, the the cross doesn't fit into the expectation of either group. It doesn't fit into the expectation of the self-righteous Jews. It didn't make any sense to them. And it didn't fit into the expectation of the Greeks who gloried in their own wisdom and their own opinions and their own high thoughts of themselves. The cross could not compute for them until they were granted the gift of faith, until they repented of that wrong mindset. And so I want to give you two reasons why the cross is so offensive to natural man. The first is this. The cross of Christ declares to mankind that we are fallen as sinners and we are not good. That is the message of the cross. One of the messages that is implied. You are not good. And children, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, the cross of Jesus Christ shows that we are not good people. We are sinners who need someone to remove our sin. And this is offensive because people want to believe in their own goodness. And in general, as as I think a fair generalization, people will make a positive moral evaluation of themselves and tend to make negative moral evaluations of others. This is endemic to the fallen human condition of pride and a self-righteous perspective about ourselves. People tend to make positive moral evaluations. They tend to think, in most cases, that they are pretty good. Perhaps there's some exceptions. Sometimes there's societal sins or crimes where people uh, finally come to accept that in the eyes of society they're not good. But in most cases, for the average person, they tend to put themselves on top of the moral pile, and from that vantage point, they make judgments about everybody else underneath them. But the cross of Christ, it comes as a message to every single one of us, and it says, you are not the good person that you might think you are. You're not good. You are fallen. You deserve judgment, and you can never do enough to solve your problem. This is offensive because it makes us look bad. For those that want to look good, it makes us look bad to 
receive this message of the cross. We are... We are those who want to think of ourselves as exalted beings. We can accomplish so much. We can do so much good. We can solve so many problems. And we can get glory for ourselves in the process. And to all this, the cross of Christ says, you're not good. You can't do all these things yourself. And there is no glory for you. And so this is the first reason that the cross is so offensive. It says to the world, you are not good. Secondly, the cross of Christ declares to mankind, you cannot do anything to solve your own problem. This is the fourth point in your notes, children. The cross of Jesus Christ shows that we cannot save ourselves, but that God had to save us by giving his own son. Modern secular people, they often deny the category of sin altogether. You'll notice that the the word sin is a a vocabulary word that does not feature much in popular discourse. Whenever it appears, it almost has sort of a a retro feel. It seems to harken back to a century of another time for if you read it like in a newspaper. And it's kind of a, it's a good shock to the system if you read a news article and you you see the word sin show up. Oh, good, okay. The category exists. Sometimes they're quoting a Christian who says it. But I'm, I'm so often disappointed when these diagnoses and these analyses are brought out about the human condition by a, a secular world of the, the Greeks, the modern Greeks as it were. But everybody in our world knows that something is very wrong with our world. I have yet to meet a person that says that everything is perfect in our world. It's just simply contrary to all of our human experience, right? To deny the reality that there is evil in the world. And of course, that's in fact the objection that so many people bring against the faith is the very real, tangible presence of evil. But the category of sin as a cause of that evil is most often or many times denied by people who do not want to deal with that category, And again, we want to think that we can solve our own problems, whether those problems are defined in in some sort of religious sense, like the various world religions define our problems, like a Buddhism would define it, or the secular versions that are predominantly materialistic and their problems related to how long we live and problems related to climate, etc. Whatever the problem is, what the cross of Christ says is that our problems run so much deeper than anything that we can solve. And in an attempt to reframe the problem, some modern thinkers say that sin is not our problem, but rather, since we are just biological creatures with natural processes, anyone who commits crime or perpetuates more evil, they just have some physical defect that we need to figure out how to solve. Going back to the example of Richard Dawkins, he actually said as much. He says we, we should think of criminals not in the categories of evil and sin, but basically as broken computers that need parts fixed, or they need a software update. Or we just need to think of it as a, a car that's broken. If we could just figure out which part to put in, uh, we could get the whole system and engine running correctly again. Is that all that human beings are? Is that all the problem of evil is in the world is just uh, broken machines that need fixing by people smart enough to fix it 
Well, I would ask how he intends to fix it, if that is the case. I would ask, how, how do you propose solving the most intractable problems of sin and evil? As you come face to face with the most horrific evils this world has ever seen, people given over to the worst depravities ever, how do you intend to figure out which part is broken and which part you're going to fix? The cross of Christ says to this world, it says to us, we cannot fix ourselves, nor can any other smart thinker or scientist fix this problem, brothers and sisters. The cross of Christ says that what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh so that we could be saved from the otherwise intractable problem of our sins. And so may we forsake all other attempts to save ourselves, all other attempts to put our trust in anything that we have done. And that's why this was so relevant for Paul to bring out because they had this ritual that they were tempted to put their trust in. And Paul is saying, yes, the cross is offensive. Yes, it's shocking. But it is indeed the only way that you can be reconciled to God. And you can see then, as long as people thought that this thing that I've done will gain me favor with God, this, all these other things I've done, they're going to restore me into fellowship with God. They're going to bring me into fellowship with God's people and Paul says, no, no, that's futile. That's, there's no way that you can uh, attain the, your state of salvation through anything that you have done. He says, it's, it's either or. You, you're going to have circumcision or any other ritual or the offense of the cross. But of course, if we are those who have been given eyes to see, then the cross will not be offensive. It will be to us the power and the wisdom of God. And so I want to ask you today, as you think about this message, as you uh, consider the offense of the cross to this world, as you think about the, uh, the offended atheists and their objections to the cross, where do you stand in relation to this cross? What do you think of the cross? As you read the gospel accounts of Jesus betrayed and delivered over to be crucified, do you believe that this event happened according to God's plan? Do you believe that God did this to save you? Consider what else the Bible says about the cross of Christ. I just want to read three key statements from three apostles. These are men that were authorized by the risen Christ to deliver the message to the world. And here's what they said about the cross. This is the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The Apostle John, he tells us of what love is. He says in 1 John 4, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know what a propitiation means? It is that wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. And the Bible says that that is the revelation of the love of God to the world. The Apostle Paul, he writes, Romans chapter 5, he says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this testimony? Have you placed your trust in the risen Lord Jesus who has has died, who has risen again, who has ascended to the right hand of God to save you from sin and death and judgment? You could be offended by the cross or your heart could be melted in love as you behold God's love for you in it. To believe the testimony of the cross, it will require you to come to terms with who you really are. It will require you to reckon with how deeply affected you are by the poison of sin. You will have to humble yourself in the sight of God. You will have to declare him holy, just, loving, and merciful. You will have to forsake all confidence in yourself. You will have to forsake your pride And you will have to embrace what Paul says in Galatians 6 where he says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So therefore, brothers and sisters, if we are those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, then the cross will not be an offense to us, but it will be for all eternity the revelation of the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that the cross of Christ is a demonstration of your wisdom and power. It is a demonstration of your love to sinners such as us, and it is our hope, the only grounds of our confidence. And I do pray for us as a congregation that you would guard us against being knocked off course in the race of the Christian life. We pray that you would teach us to be watchful against those intrusions of false teaching and false behavior of sinful paths of satanic deception that would knock us off course. And wherever there may be leaven in our hearts or leaven in our church as a whole, we pray that it would be purged and we ask that the message of the cross would be faithfully proclaimed and sincerely believed by all here at Reformation Church. We pray this in the name of our Lord. Amen.